Now, turning to the second key move in the case for multiculturalism, the claim that individual human flourishing depends on a sense of belonging to such a cultural community. I'd like to say this. Belonging is very important. It was very important to Isaiah Berlin. He wrote at one point, or actually said in an interview with Nathan Gardels, that Herder invented the idea of belonging. And it was very important to him personally. None of us in this room, I think, believes what Jeremy Waldron uh, that we are what Jeremy Waldron has called the self-made atoms of liberal fantasy. Of course not. And real problems do come with the consequences of large-scale and particularly rapid immigration, particularly if immigrants, their children and grandchildren, remain concentrated in small areas, ghettos for want of a better word. The recent work of Robert Putnam very serious empirical work, has shown quite clearly that if you have too rapid a growth in diversity, you have a decline in trust, what he calls social capital, a decline in social cohesion. And there's much evidence to suggest that that is the case in Britain too. The question is, not is there a problem here, but a sense of belonging to what? How defined and how enhanced? Is it a sense of belonging to sub-national cultural communities that we wish to encourage? Or is it rather, as I would argue, a sense of belonging to political communities defined by civic membership, not ethnic, not linguistic, not racial, not religious, civic communities open to all who wish to belong, who accept and play by the rules? a civic community like Wolfson College or Oxford University or Oxford City or a region or a state with an element of national culture. I must say I'm not a huge fan of Gordon Brown's idea that we must rediscover and define Britishness. I tend to think that trying to define Britishness is a somewhat un-British activity. But when Bhikkhu Parikh writes, I quote, the idea of national culture makes little sense, I have to ask, why? And why does it make less sense than the idea of a sub-national culture? I think Isaiah Berlin would profoundly have disagreed. What was Herder's Volksgeist? The Kulturnation, then precisely, a national culture. Kulturnationen exist, national cultures exist. The question is not do they exist. The question is what is the relationship between Kulturnation and Staatsnation? Is it the belonging to an ethnic or cultural or linguistic nation which defines your belonging to the state, that is, Nationalstaat, or is it as in French republicanism, your belonging to the state as a citizen that defines your belonging to the nation, the état-nation. Indeed, we do need a strong sense of belonging 
but not, I think, to discrete and artificially preserved subnational communities. I asked at the beginning of this lecture what we could usefully do with the contested concept of multiculturalism. Rather, I think, to my own surprise, I've come up with a rather clear answer. I think we could usefully abandon it. Roll it up, throw it in the waste paper basket. We'd be better off without it. Now, in the final part of my talk, having abandoned the concept of multiculturalism, thrown it into the wagger, I want to ask how we face the challenge which is so inadequately described by the term multiculturalism, what kind of response we should make other than those which are so inadequately described as multiculturalism. I think the challenge can be most simply described as that of combining liberty and diversity. And the best response is some combination of liberalism and pluralism, or what one might call liberal pluralism, in the spirit of Isaiah Berlin. Liberty and diversity. A diversity which particularly is a consequence of mass migration over the last 60 years or so since T.S. Eliot wrote, is itself extraordinarily diverse. It's not just cultural, it's religious, ethnic, racial, social, linguistic, economic, gastronomic, musical, sartorial, enological. We should talk about the diversity of diversity. This is a fact which is both in some ways a problem but also an opportunity. There is, of course, no necessary contradiction between liberty and diversity. Indeed, one might argue that since freedom means choice, freedom requires diversity. If you have nothing to choose between, where is your freedom of choice? There is also a very simple and I think very important point that was made by Raymond Williams reflecting on Berlin's value pluralism. Williams wrote as, I beg your pardon, Bernard Williams, not Raymond Williams, Bernard Williams, reflecting on Isaiah's uh, value pluralism, he wrote as follows. If there are many and competing genuine values, then the greater the extent to which a society tends to be single-valued, the more genuine values it thereby neglects or suppresses. More, to this extent, must mean better. And liberal pluralism, with its values of individual liberty, toleration, and personal autonomy, is the best way to provide a framework for that diversity of goods, to provide the social spaces and the terms in which individuals can pursue their different goals. The question is, of course, within which limits, how to proceed. I think we should proceed in this debate not with the slogans or the grand ideological concepts, enlightenment values, multiculturalism, 
but simply by entering into a debate on the following question. What are the minimum core liberal principles which are non-negotiable? What are the matters which are properly negotiable? And what are the matters which are simply ones of individual conscience and choice? Among the first, I would mention, for example, a very strong list of individual human rights and equality before the law, a very strong uh, defense of freedom of expression, including the right to offend, something which is quite demanding in our own times, as we have seen, and a complete freedom to proselytize change or abandon your religion. Among the things that are negotiable, I would mention, for example, and these are just a few among many, the right to practice your religion, therefore to have buildings in which to practice that religion, to build them, time off from work for religious observance, matters of dress, matters of noise and communal coexistence, for example, the little question of the call to prayer from the mosque in East Oxford, which has been agitating some people recently. That is a proper matter for negotiation, not some non-negotiable essential. Now, this is in fact the project on which I'm currently engaged. And since I'm only starting on it, I can't yet share with you my conclusions because I don't yet have them. And perhaps you can help me to find them. And also because I only have about ten minutes left. So what I want to do in conclusion is just to share with you five thoughts, as it were, notes towards the definition of this agenda, which I think are in some measure inspired by the liberal pluralism of Isaiah Berlin. Um, the first of these is to say that while I'm sceptical about the notion of some grand attempt to define Britishness or to produce a statement of British values, I do think that we need in Britain a clear but not legally binding, as it were, didactic statement of the fundamental rights and duties of the citizen. I think that would be an extremely useful thing to have in a society which is in so many ways so mixed up. Of course, many countries have that anyway because they have written constitutions. They have bills of right like the United States or like Germany. Some countries have actually done it in addition off the cuff. Italy did it recently. I think it would be very useful to do it here. And I think that would actually be welcomed by communities of immigrant origin themselves. Because the statement, this is what you do have to do as a British citizen, is also the statement, this is what you don't have to do, which what is your, your own business, as it were. Now, this, of course, has to connect to international and European covenants and law. I'm sure we have some lawyers in the room. And let me mention just one article of one such covenant. Article 27 
of the 1966 International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. States, I quote, In those states in which ethnic, religious, or linguistic minorities exist, persons belonging to such minorities shall not be denied the right in community with the other members of their group to enjoy their own culture, profess and practice their own religion, or to use their own language. End of Article 27. Now, that has its fair share of opaque terms. What does it mean exactly to enjoy your culture? What does it mean to do so in community with the other members of your group? But nonetheless, I think it makes two quite important points, which are absolutely right. One is that cultural rights do not need to be collective group rights. They can be construed as individual personal rights. And second is that the state's duty is best described in that phrase, shall not deny. In other words, the duty, the state has a duty to try to ensure that people are not denied the possibility to enjoy their culture, speak in their own language, practice their religion, but it has no duty to promote that culture, that religion, that language, to perpetuate it, to solidify it, as much multicultural policy suggests. And I think that gets the balance about right. Of course, that begs many very important and obvious practical questions about how you do that, languages in schools, and so on. But in principle, I think that is the right position, that cultural rights do exist and are individual, and that the duty of the state is to ensure that people are not denied these possibilities. This leads on to my third note, which is about the enormous importance of defending the line in liberal societies of equality before one law. Equality before one law. This is absolutely fundamental. Liberty under law. I think the Archbishop of Canterbury made a great mistake when he plunged in somewhat complicated fashion into that debate about the Sharia but we do have to acknowledge that in classic Western liberal societies at the moment, there are actually rather notable exceptions to this rule and exemptions from it. Uh, one well-known example is the Amish community in the United States, which actually has quite far-reaching exemptions from the single law. Jewish religious courts have for some time had particular dispensations in matters of family law, for example, in divorce. Um, there is, of course, the famous case of the Sikhs not having to wear crash helmets. There are quite really significant exceptions, significant certainly for people growing up in these communities, which need to be examined. Our colleague Stuart White is actually working precisely on this subject, and I look forward very much to seeing what he come up, comes up with. But I would just say a couple of things about this. First of all, that exceptions should be just that, exceptional. Exemptions should be just that, exemptions. That is to say, this should not be about creating new jurisdictions, parallel jurisdictions, exemptions perhaps. Thirdly, 
that we have really to be on our guard against double standards. I think that Muslims in Europe really do have an important point when they say, well, look, you have Christian faith schools and Jewish faith schools. Why shouldn't we have Muslim ones? Or you have Jewish family courts. Why shouldn't we have Muslim ones? In many respects, I think we have to go in one direction or the other. Either we have to acknowledge that what's source for the goose is source for the gander, or we have to move more in a liberal Republican direction, which would actually mean reducing some of the exemptions that already exist. And perhaps most important, and here I take up a point from Wilkin Blicker, there is a vital distinction when we're talking about these cultural rights between what he calls external protections and internal restrictions. That is to say, between the external protection of some sort of cultural rights of a given group, as it might be Muslims or Sikhs or Hindus or Vietnamese, and permitting by law internal restrictions within the group so that fathers in families or self-appointed community leaders have particular powers over members of their own community. That is where I think we have to draw the line and that is, I think, the line between conservative pluralism and liberal pluralism. Liberal pluralism places a primary value on individual autonomy, on informed personal choice that each person, including people growing up, people growing up, are free to examine and revise their own notion of the good life. Free and able so to do. Able, that is, to challenge, to go beyond what has been well called the normative power of the given. The normative power of the given. That is to say that human beings growing up in a very limited context, without access to other cultures and experiences, without access to comparative education, tend to accept what they know as normal. If you grow up in a place where bribery and corruption and theft are normal and every day, you accept it as normal. You internalize it as a norm. To talk about autonomy, to talk about liberal pluralism, means having citizens who are in some minimal sense equipped to challenge the normative power of the given. What do they know of England who only England know? And just to come back to our earlier image of liberalism and cannibalism, and to strike a slightly lighter note, some of you will know that wonderful Flanders and Swan song about the cannibals, uh, sitting around the pot while their lunch is cooking um, and looking forward to it, when suddenly Junior strikes up, don't eat people. Eating people is wrong. This is precisely what we're looking for in liberal pluralism. It is the moment when, jun when Junior strikes up and says, eating people is wrong. Um, and as you know, the song goes on wonderfully. The, the elders of the tribe say, how, how totally would ridiculous this position is that eating people is wrong. Whatever next, they say, why soon he'll be saying, 
don't fight people. Ridiculous. This is actually the core notion of the Enlightenment. Immanuel Kant's answer to the question, what is, our, uh, what is Enlightenment? Aufklärung ist der Ausgang des Menschen aus seiner selbstverschuldeten Unmüdigkeit. Enlightenment is the humans being stepping out from their self-imposed condition of being a minor, of being unable to use your reason without the instruction of others. Sapere aude, cries Kant after Horace, have the courage to use your own reason. And this is, of course, everything I've said in the last 45 minutes, is, ladies and gentlemen, a very considerable demand on those who come from often conservative religious cultures and who now live in liberal societies in Europe. The demand of liberal integration, not assimilation, but integration, is indeed a demand in which they have, as it were, if I may say they, to move 70% or even 80% of the distance. And we, in some sense, to go 20 or 30. And because that is true, the other 20 or 30% is particularly important and has indeed to be emphasized, precisely because we cannot compromise on the non-negotiable liberal essentials, which are so demanding, for example, for many Muslims from rural conservative communities in the Indian subcontinent, the 20% of opening to them, of mutual recognition, of what Jürgen Habermas calls the mutual opening of believers in different religions and in none, the attitude which says, though you speak in a different language, and maybe employ a different logic, though maybe you use the language of a religion which is alien to us, nonetheless, nonetheless, there may be in what you say poetry and truth, insight and wisdom, expressed in a very different way. That is an attitude which I think it is very important for us to cultivate if we are going to make this combination of liberty and diversity work, whether in Oxford or in England or in Britain or in Europe or in the United States. And here, and this is my very last remark, the example of Isaiah Berlin is a particularly important one. Because what was so characteristic of Isaiah Berlin, beyond all the elements I've mentioned already, was his tremendous curiosity about other people and other cultures. His imaginative sympathy, his ability to get inside very different countries. He talked about Vico's Fantasia, or Herder's Einfühlungsvermögen, and he had it in spades. His generosity of spirit towards very different people. His civility, something much more than mere politeness or courtesy a much larger quality characteristic of civil society. Curiosity, imaginative sympathy, generosity of spirit, civility. These are precisely the qualities 
that we need if we are to defend and indeed enhance our freedom in increasingly diverse societies. And these are the qualities that Isaiah Berlin demonstrated so magnificently. And therefore, ladies and gentlemen, whether we live in Oxford or Bradford, Madrid or Paris, New York or Melbourne, we should all be Berliners now. Thank you very much.